Today is June 15th, 2022. Welcome to The Regimen, where public health pharmacists, pharmacy students, and our guests discuss the latest public health issues relevant to all healthcare providers, their patients, and policymakers. Listen to find out how pharmacists and pharmacy students like us can improve population health, health equity, and patient care through advocacy and education. I'm Amanda Rocha, a last year pharmacy student at the University of Rhode Island, working alongside my professor, Dr. Bratberg, while on public health rotation at the Rhode Island Department of Health. My name is Zachary Oquendo, and I'm also a last year pharmacy student at the University of Rhode Island. I'm also working with Dr. Bratberg at the Rhode Island Department of Health. And I'm Jeff Bradberg. I'm a clinical professor of pharmacy practice at the URI College of Pharmacy and at the Department of Health. I'm the academic collaborations officer. Our guest today is Dr. Lynn Taylor, a research professor at the University of Rhode Island, the physician director of HIV and viral hepatitis services at Kodak Behavioral Health and the director of RI Defeats Hep C. Today we'll discuss Hep C, Rhode Island's plan to eliminate the disease, and the role pharmacists can play in its elimination. But before we begin today's discussion, Dr. Taylor, welcome to the regimen. Why don't you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege to be here today. I'm an internal medicine, primary care, HIV and viral hepatitis physician, clinical researcher, educator, and public health advocate, focused on whole person medical care of people who use drugs. I've worked in Rhode Island for 25 years, enhancing prevention and treatment of infectious consequences of opioid use disorder and injection drug use, including HIV AIDS, viral hepatitis, and sexually transmitted infections. And I work on related research and policy to improve individual public health. And I've worked as an advisor to the CDC and World Health Organization, and I'm very involved with the International Network on Health and Hepatitis and Substance Users, so we can take lessons from Australia, Canada, Switzerland, Portugal, Egypt, and other nations and bring best practices to the United States. All right. Thank you for that introduction. And thank you for coming on today to join us for our podcast. We usually split this into kind of three sections. So the first section, we're just going to discuss why we're going to try to eliminate hep C. So disease eradication, which is defined as permanent reduction to zero of the worldwide incidence of infection caused by a specific agent as the result of deliberate efforts. Right now, the only disease that we have eradicated is smallpox, and that was back in 1980. Other attempts to eradicate diseases have had limited success, so we kind of shifted towards the term disease elimination, which is just reducing the incidence to zero in a particular geographic area. We've done this for measles and polio, I was looking into what makes a disease a good candidate for elimination efforts. I found that the best candidates are easily diagnosable, don't have non-human reservoirs, are geographically restricted, and have vaccine transmission disrupting alternatives. Does hep C meet all these requirements? Hep C is the biggest infectious disease killer in the United States, aside from COVID, which means hep C causes more deaths than the top 60 other reportable infectious diseases combined, including HIV. And incidence is rising, so we're going in the wrong direction in the United States, unlike other nations which are moving closer to elimination. Um, In 2020, the CDC reported that US hep C incidence tripled from 2019 to 2018 due to the opioid crisis and injection drug use. You know, when you ask about elimination, elimination, of course, is the pinnacle of public health achievement, right? It can alleviate suffering, improve health, provide economic benefits. It creates capacity for all of us to work on other health conditions. And of course, it advances social justice and health equity. So hep C then meets some of the criteria you mentioned. It is radically diagnosable 
and it does not have non-human reservoirs. But it's not geographically restricted. It has vast global prevalence. Importantly, we do not yet have a vaccine. I think the science is there, although it's a very complicated virus. I think we don't have a vaccine yet because funding and resources, mostly driven by pharma, steer us more towards treatment than prevention. But another element of disease elimination is transmission disrupting alternatives. So for hep C, we do have this. The foundation is access to opioid agonist therapy, meaning methadone prescription, which is a mu receptor full agonist, and buprenorphine, which is a mu receptor partial agonist, often paired with the antagonist naloxone, which Dr. Bratberg has done tremendous work on in Rhode Island and beyond. So opioid agonist therapy, fundamental treatment for opioid use disorder, reduces illicit opioid use, cravings, overdoses, death, but it also facilitates hep C screening, treatment, uptake, cure, reduces incidence, reinfection, and can improve retention and care. So without a vaccine, which as you mentioned, was needed to eliminate our only other infectious disease that we've thus far been able to eliminate, prevention benefits are greatest when the new hep C pills, which lead to cure, are delivered in combination with opiate agonist therapy and high coverage needle syringe availability. So we're going to need all three of those things, treatment, scaled up, needle syringe provision, and opiate agonist therapy to eliminate hep C. All right. So hep C was a leading cause of death for more Rhode Islanders than any other infectious disease in 2019, with the exception of COVID. And it's estimated that 2% of all Rhode Islanders have been infected with HCV. Why is it a priority for elimination in Rhode Island? Rhode Island is way behind, unfortunately. We lag in elimination projections. We joined seven other states projected to eliminate hep C latest beyond 2050. This is from a very important study by Mark Sokowski, who's one of our national leaders. And again, this is the biggest infectious disease killer in the United States. Now, before COVID-19, U.S. life expectancy fell for three years in a row. This is a reversal that hadn't been seen since 1918 or in any other wealthy nation in modern times. And this is in large part due to the rise in deaths of despair from causes including drug overdose and hep C. I cannot tell you what it's like to have boots on the ground and seeing the suffering caused by the strains under COVID-19 for vulnerable, disadvantaged populations, people who inject drugs, people with and at risk for hep C, things are getting worse. Yet here we have this tiniest state in the nation with an incredible community of people such as yourselves, one of the best colleges of pharmacy in the nation. We have a wonderful medical school, a great medical community, great public health. We could all be working together to eliminate hep C. I do wanna mention why we really have the perfect opportunity to eliminate hep C now because we have recent sets of evidence-based recommendations. So we have the CDC, 2020 recommendations, basically recommending universal hep C screening. We have the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force updated recommendations, basically recommending universal hep C screening. And these align with the American Association for Study of Liver Diseases and Infectious Diseases Society of America guidance, all endorsing one-time routine opt-out screening for everyone 18 years and older. You know, there's some caveats with additional ongoing screening for high-risk subgroups, but we then have recommendations for universal treatment. So all of this together means this is the time to step up, 
rapidly scale up our efforts. We can't eliminate hep C without a vaccine by slowly working on this step-by-step. We need to rapidly scale up opiate agonist therapy, harm reduction, and treatment. So why is it important that adults get tested even if they don't have risk factors? I think three main points. Testing by asking people to raise their hand and admit to what they may consider shameful behavior has been an abysmal failure. We learned this with HIV years ago. Risk-based screening misses many people. Overburdened primary care, telling those of us in primary care, you know, just get everyone tested and make sure you, or just get people with risk tested. Primary care is too overburdened to just take this all on and try to figure out who's at risk and who's not. The field has evolved so rapidly that there's a lack of current knowledge among patients and healthcare workers. And there's the stigma associated with injection drug use even decades ago. So risk-based screening has not worked and it's been attempted for years and years and years. And then the CDC moved from raise your hand if you did something shameful to the baby boomer cohort and that didn't work. And now we have to look at another strategy. So the second point is that we can't just change screening recommendations because you know, the old ones failed and we better do something different. We really have to meet scientific criteria. And the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force has a very rigorous process, process for deeming screenings as beneficial. So through their very rigorous process, which you can read about in JAMA 2020, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force made a recommendation statement saying that we should screen for adults in the U.S., 18 and older for hep C at least once. And when you look at the rationale, what we see is that we have the tools to simply and accurately detect hep C. So we can diagnose it pretty easily. There are benefits to early detection and treatment and this little hormone screening. We have very safe, effective medications. So the task force concluded that there's a substantial net benefit. So these are the main reasons why it's important that adults get tested, even if they don't think that they have risk factors. Now, I just want to mention when we talk about getting tested, I think it's really important in hep C that we use language that's precise when we think about this and differentiate between screening and testing. And so the task force recommends screening. So in the United States, currently we screen with the least expensive test called an antibody. An antibody is a protein that we make in response to hep C, which denotes exposure. All it tells us if the result is reactive or some people call it positive is that there's been an exposure to hep C. And the big problem is that the next step, if it's a reactive result, is to get a fancier, more complicated test that has to be done in a lab called a hep C RNA. It's often done by PCR or TMA in a lab that some people call a viral load. That's a check for the virus itself. And when you look again and again and again at the science, all the publications, the ample data, the biggest drop-off in the United States from prevention to infection to cure and on, preventing reinfection, dealing with the liver disease, is the drop-off between the antibody screening and the viral diagnostic testing. And so we do want people to be screened, but it should not be uncoupled with diagnostic testing because what's happened in Rhode Island and where we failed is again and again and again, we've been patting ourselves on the back for doing all these screening tests and people screen positive or reactive and nothing happens after that. So we have to close that diagnostic gap. The best thing would be if we could do a one-step diagnostic test, go right to the virus, just test for the virus, 
That's a complicated test in a lab and requires blood drawn from a vein rather than the antibody, which we can do with a prick of the finger. So what we're working on is diagnostic improvement where with the prick of the finger, you could get the viral load result. So we do want to promote these screening recommendations, but we also want to be sure that screening is followed by diagnostic testing. Otherwise, the same people keep getting screened again and again and again. They never get an answer as to whether they're infected or not. And we're not getting people the diagnosis that they need and we're not getting them cured. Remarkable advances in therapy have occurred with the treatments for hepatitis C with the approval of drugs called direct acting antivirals that cure HCV with a short duration of therapy of just eight to 12 weeks. This treatment is extraordinarily effective, but costly and difficult to obtain. What have you done to eliminate barriers to treatment? So, hey, is this exciting or what? A virus that can be cured? We can't cure any other viruses, but we finally have a virus that we can cure. I just want to mention, you know, we have the meds that can cure 99% of people who take them and complete the course. Cost versus price, that there's a big difference between cost versus price and the, the drugs cost nothing. The price is in high. So if we can discuss that, I'd love to circle back because sofosbuvir, for example, the reduction cost is $1.50 per pill. And it's really the manufacturers that set the US prices so high. So that's that's something I, I hope that we can discuss. But really, we it's very, very well established that universal immediate DAA treatment is cost effective and decreases downstream costs because curing people leads us to avoid liver-related complications, not including even the prevention benefits, which decrease risk to the community. So I think that's, that's an important distinction. But what happened was when the DAAs first were FDA approved, December, 2013, you know, this was a real game changer. This was a revolution in the history of humankind, a virus we can cure with medications. And we were all saying, yay, this is unbelievable. We're going to really help alleviate suffering. And this is not going to be the last final insult of Vietnam vets that they're not going to have to die of FC. And what happened? The first pill that came out was priced at $1,000 a day. So the response by many payers, including Rhode Island Medicaid, they didn't have the budget up front, was to say, oh, we're going to ration the treatment. Only these people are worthy. Only those people are worthy. We're going to prioritize. And so... That's what happened. Um, and it did mean that there was some medical prioritization, but there was also some maybe misunderstanding about who was worthy and not worthy of treatment. And so prioritization became rational, rationing treatment and then mixed up in that became some people are less worthy than others of treatment. And it was done in a way, I don't think anybody, you know, it wasn't malicious, but the reality is that this, this disease, um, the target population, the disease is driven through injection drug use. And so the population at greatest risk of illness, death, transmission was really barred from accessing treatment. And so what we tried to do collaboratively with our colleagues in our state, many different stakeholders around Rhode Island, from our Medicaid colleagues to our health department colleagues, was to really discuss and see what we could work out. And very slowly, some of the rationing criteria were tripped away. So for example, initially nurse practitioners who were experts on using the old medications, interferon, couldn't even prescribe the new easier medications. Um, initially you had to wait until your liver was precancerous till you had cirrhosis, full scarring of the liver before you could access treatment. And we had many patients getting treated and getting liver cancer anyway and dying because it was 
too late. So we worked at chipping away at those restrictions. But meanwhile, it was like having a bathtub on full force with hot water with the drain open. Every time we treated someone, we had 10 more new cases. And states all around the nation were starting to do more. And we tried to negotiate and tried to negotiate. And finally, February 1, 2018, after I spoke with the governor and the head of the health department and everyone at Medicaid, we had to instigate a lawsuit against Rhode Island Medicaid. And with the help of lawyers at Harvard who work on health policy um, and a lot of lawyers on the ground here working on social justice and health equity, the restrictions were overturned. Before that, again, we tried by publishing. The pen is always mightier than the sword. So Samitri Barua, who was a Brown undergraduate, was the first author on an Annals of Internal Medicine publication. She's now a neurology resident at Brown. But she and I worked with a number of colleagues around the nation on publishing on the restrictions and how they violated federal Medicaid law. So it was really through research, through writing, through policy work, through publishing in the Rhode Island Medical Journal, trying to to see what we could do to take steps. Um, It was really a last resort that we had to instigate a lawsuit, which led to full access to these life-saving medications. Yes, I've always admired your work to combine those things. And it's what we advocate our students to do is to make sure you're integrating practice and teaching and research, but having advocacy surround all of it so that those three things can improve and ultimately the community and the patient both benefit. You wanted to, you brought up a really interesting point that I think the public doesn't really know about. And I know pharmacists do is, you know, it takes pennies to make naloxone that we charge $150 for it, right? It takes, would you say $1.50 to make one of the most effective hep C meds and you can get it for that price around the world. You talked about your international work, you know, we're sort of like, why is, why can you treat hep C in Egypt for $800? And it's, you know, what at the time, $48,000 or something in the U S. So there's a lot of, we're going to have a future podcast on this. You know, Mark Cuban has his, you know, generic drug discounts now. California is actually going to manufacture their own drugs for their $40 billion they spend on California Medicaid. Other companies that are sort of skipping the the middleman to to make drugs. What solutions do you have or do you suggest, you know, should Rhode Island be making their own hep C meds to eliminate hep C? Or, you know, what are some other thoughts you have about that giant uh, comparison in price from manufacturer to public or private payer or patient payment? This is, again, the biggest infectious disease dealer killer in the United States. So I think we just can't be strangled by the pricing here. And you know, one very important role for pharmacists with, is, I think, to say, let's make transparent the cost and pricing of direct acting antivirals. There's a lot of political wheeling and dealing with rebates and discounts. I mean, the taxpayers should know. Medicaid recipients, one out of three Rhode Islanders now, I just heard Dr. Finger outside is a Medicaid recipient. If we don't pay when we're Medicaid recipients, remember, we can't negotiate medication prices and we're going to be paying even more money if the Medicare population is getting the hep C treatment. And remember, their livers are worse. The enemy of hep C is time. Why do we need pharmacy benefits managers? I don't even know, but I think you all know better than I do. But I do think that there's a lot of money being made off this, whether you look at Medicaid providers, insurers, commercial pharmacies. I think we need to trace the pathway from the manufacturing to the time the pill gets to the patient's hand to put into the patient's mouth, we all need to know what's happening here when it comes to such an important public health problem and really work together 
nationally to make sure that we have full transparency about the current pricing. I think we can say in all in the most fair possible way that the pharmaceutical companies have recouped their development and manufacturing costs. And we're really at a point now where we have to look to some of the things that Clinton and others did when there were other public health crises about medications in the United States. Do you think that because the population is so large, do you see generic manufacturers, uh, you know, popping up for these meds and perhaps imposing some price, some uh, competition in the market? I hope so. I mean, some of the pharmaceutical companies have produced their own generic versions and we still can't find out the price. I was just asked, Lynn, can you go advocate to Rhode Island's Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee for such and such a generic medication? I said, I think it would be really wonderful for those of us treating these patients and prescribing these medications to have the full option so we could prescribe the best medication for each individual. I can't go advocate unless I know what, what your pricing is. I don't want to advocate for something that's going to bankrupt Medicaid. We're all in this together. I don't want that to mean that some other person can't get a certain medication that she needs because we're using up too much of the budget on hep C meds. So of course, in the long run, you know, right now I would estimate, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, that it's about $10,000 per treatment course that leads to cure. And when you look at cost effectiveness and cost benefit, you're getting a lot of bang for your buck with one course of treatment to cure a virus that then will prevent all these horrible downstream impacts. Think about the cost of a liver transplant, millions, not just the surgery, but lifelong immunosuppressions, lifelong monitoring, lifelong risk for infectious consequences of being put on immunosuppressant medications. I think we could do a lot better with the transparency so we know what steps to take. Another model that's being used in some states is what's called Netflix. For hep C meds, you kind of work out a whole deal where you say, okay, the state says, we're going to pay this much money. And as many people as you can treat in a year, you know, we'll let you treat as many patients as you can for the year. And Louisiana and other states are doing that. And that seems to be working very well. All right. Thank you for that informative discussion about the therapies. So we're going to kind of move into the elimination plan for Rhode Island and the role pharmacists can play in it. So the recent elimination plan proposed by the Rhode Island Department of Health was developed to strengthen cross-sector partnerships in order to improve current systems and address gaps related to the prevention, screening, diagnosis, and treatment of hepatitis C. What are your goals and steps for elimination in the RI defeats hep C plan? So eliminating hep C in Rhode Island requires a coordinated, comprehensive, sustained, multi-pronged approach. I think our key priorities include keeping us up to date with rapidly evolving best practices because the science is evolving rapidly. A few years ago, we couldn't say cure. We want to improve the capacity of Rhode Island's health systems to address hep C. And Amanda, you're here. We're cultivating the next generation of hep C experts and advocates by bringing hep C to the forefront of education in the College of Pharmacy and all our medical and public health institutions. I think the number one priority is to develop on-site hep C care, under one roof, test to treat care for high prevalence populations. So for example, at the new safe injecting facility that's to be started at our syringe service program, at all opioid agonist therapy programs, at our HIV care centers, supporting the establishment of co-located test-to-treat sites. And finally, using Rhode Island's world-class arts community to engage everybody in the hep C field. But I would say the goal for 2020 is test-to-treat, simplified pathways, simplify, streamline, reduce the timeline of hep C management. Remember, 
if you go through the traditional pathway, which we've changed, many of us now, and we need to broaden the scope of this approach, if you get an appointment for your first visit in four months, maybe you make it, maybe you don't, then you get another appointment, maybe someone does call you back, then you make it, and then they want to do this, and they want to get your history and get your blood, then you get another appointment, and then you get a scan, time is passing, time is passing, time is passing, your liver's getting sicker, and you might be spreading hep C. You know, with all the pain and suffering of COVID-19 pandemic, it's ushered in the era of telehealth. So now I can have an individual never meet me, go get labs drawn, one blood draw for a few things. I can look at those blood tests, have a conversation on the phone for people who don't even have video access. And at the initial visit, by the time we're done with the visit, I can prescribe meds. I want to give a shout out to Neighborhood Health. With the removal of the prior auths for hep C meds, we still have tremendous barriers with, with most of the, with all the other payers and all the other groups working to provide care for Medicaid recipients, United Health Tufts, et cetera. Medicare's problem, straight Medicaid's a problem. Really, because of neighborhood health, I can do test to treat that day. I can get off the phone with a patient, prescribe, and, and sometimes a patient can start that day. So that's the model that we need to work for. All right. I read a paper on the results of a grant that Dr. Bratberg helped with that involved the hiring of a pharmacist to improve access to HCV treatment. What roles did pharmacists play in that grant and what are the roles can pharmacists play in the elimination? So what roles can't pharmacists play at hep C elimination? I do think in this case, there is a magic bullet. When you look at other nations that have rock and rolled and are working towards elimination, no pharmacists really are key in terms of their education and training are exquisitely suited. And look at the VA, the Veterans Administration, the largest provider of hep C care in the United States, almost done. There are almost no hep C infections left in the Providence VA. And the pharmacists have been at the helm running the show. And so I think that's the question. What can't pharmacists do? And I'm so fortunate that my partner is Jackie Hopchi, who is a graduate of URI College of Pharmacy and has incredible, incredible hep C expertise. So you know, she does everything. And thanks to the grant that um, Dr. Bratberg um, really ushered in, we were able to pilot that program and funding is always the problem. Um, so we have some funding right now through another grant. Um, so Jackie helped she's able to continue with us because there's a lot of work to do from patient education to making sure people really understand what these medications are doing. Why don't I get a vaccine? Wasn't that happy shot thing? Wasn't that a hep C vaccine or a hep C shot, or what was the interferon? Understanding about medication interactions, drug-drug interactions, and talking about which is the best medicine for me, and how exactly do I take my medication so that I get cured the first time around? What are ways that I can get reinfected? How to lower my risk? Um, there's so many things, and again, we're, Jackie's still tangling with accessing the meds, even with the removal of prior authorizations to Medicaid. The prior auth process through Tufts and United Health with Medicaid is still pretty arduous. It's complicated with Medicare, still some challenges with Blue Cross Blue Shield. I do wanna to mention two other things. I, my hope for pharmacists, two things. And I wanna tell you about Dr. Stewie's study. You know, millions of dollars are coming into Rhode Island due to the opioid crisis. So the Opioid Settlement Advisory Committee has been developed. You can look at the link eohhs.rhodeisland.gov and the Opioid Settlement Advisory Committee. 
And if you look at who's deciding how to spend these millions and millions, um, because the opioid crisis and the hep C epidemic are intertwined, um, there no, there's one doctor on the committee, there are no pharmacists, there's no nurse. Um, and what do I see every day? I see people struggling with injection drug use, toggling back and forth from emergency room to emergency room without getting problems solved with opiate use disorder, with polysubstance use, with abscesses, cellulitis, bacteremia, endocarditis, septic joints, bumping, bumping around without a medical home. And some people would rather not be prescribed methadone in the way that it's done, divorced from standard medical care in the United States right now at a kind of a ghettoized clinic. A lot of problems with that kind of demedicalized model, even though I work at a methadone prescription program, a lot of good things, a lot of challenges. Other patients can have trouble accessing buprenorphine and it doesn't, it's not right for everybody. Um, other people do not want opiate agonist therapy. We do not have in Rhode Island, a medical ambulatory care center, which could be anchored by an on-site pharmacy, really with pharmacists at the helm, tailored to this population. And I think that's what we need. Pharmacists leading this type of medical center at a place easily accessible with a lot, all of us in healthcare having a lot of training to deal with the subpopulation and under one roof, we could provide hep C care, preventive care, opiate agonist therapy, vaccines, tobacco cessation medications, counseling, education, contraception, physician, I could provide medical abortion. We could provide PrEP. There could be primary care, addiction medicine, um, test to treat for hep C with a simplified pathway, HIV and hep B care, care for other STIs, wound care. And the pharmacists could have and should have a huge role. And it could be a great academic learning experience for students from all areas of medicine and pharmacy and public health around the state. It could be a low threshold site, meaning walk-ins would be allowed, late visits would be allowed, missed visits, always you're welcome. Um, there could be social services, help with food, clothing, shelter, jobs. So I think we need that. And I, I'm worried about what's gonna happen to the opioid settlement millions and we need a medical center, I think anchored by a pharmacy. I could be the first in the United States where pharmacists run a program specifically focused on the transmitting population when it comes to hep C. Um, so that's one thing. And the other role for pharmacists, I think Dr. Sui's study is really worth talking about. So Dr. Judith Sui is an associate professor of medicine um, in Seattle and a remarkable expert on opiate use disorder, HIV, hepatitis C. And she's really been highlighting the hep C treatment gap for people who inject drugs and the ways in which pharmacy models of care and pharmacists could fill this in through a pharmacy-based model for hep C care. Um, and Dr. Bradberg's taught me a lot about collaborative practice agreements and we worked on one together, which allows pharmacists autonomy under physician prescriber. I think we should really work on getting this going. I'd love to partner with all of you on this. And the pharmacist could work on everything from medication management, testing, diagnosis, counseling, initiating medications, evaluating for side effects, adjusting meds. We could incorporate naloxone prep, et cetera. And Dr. Sui has a study. Um, and again, she's an associate professor of medicine, the division of general internal medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine. She has an NIH study called Pilot Study of a Community Pharmacy Model to expand access to medications to treat and prevent hep C, opioid use disorders, overdose, and HIV among people who inject drugs. And the model is that pharmacists plus patient navigators provide hep C treatment in community sites for people who inject drugs. And we could adapt this you know, to community pharmacies. 
And so far, the study's ongoing. So far, things look very successful. The qualitative aspect of the study has been done. Now, the second phase two, piloting the community pharmacy program for medications to treat hep C is ongoing. And with lesson learned so far, this looks like an incredibly promising model where the pharmacists are seeing a very vulnerable population that isn't engaged in care. As we all know, it's much easier for people to access a pharmacist in a pharmacy than to try to get to some traditional healthcare center. And cures are happening despite non-perfect adherence. The other care that pharmacists providing is so important, hepatitis A and B vaccines and PrEP and COVID vaccinations. One thing in Dr. Tsui's study is that the pharmacist is doing the phlebotomy. So there's the quick, quick of the finger screening test, Pepsi, with the antibody. And if that comes back reactive or positive, it's actually the pharmacist on site who's drawing the blood for the confirmatory hep C viral load test. And that blood draw also gets the other basic blood test. So with one blood draw, you can get to hep C treatment. There's a little bit of complexity for patients who look like they might have severe liver disease and you just collaborate together with the other members of your team. But I'm extremely excited about working together and pharmacists being at the helm of US hep C elimination. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually read several studies performed in the United Kingdom and the United States that demonstrated that trained and motivated community pharmacists in partnership with the Department of Health could perform the needed rapid hep C tests for high-risk patients that weren't currently in care. It was an effective strategy and it did prove to be cost-effective. What are your thoughts on universal on-demand rapid testing in community pharmacies with the rapid referral to treatment? And do you think that there's other barriers to testing? So, yeah, thanks for bringing up all those really interesting points. Um, I think isolated hep C antibody screening has been shown not to lead to anything at the population level. A few people might make it past the reactive antibody, but unless at the pharmacy, you could also do the blood draw for the confirmatory test and then work with you know, let's say a physician under one of these collaborative agreements to work on the treatment there, the whole idea of referring people to offsite care is not working at the population level. You know, we've treated a lot of the folks who might have an easier time navigating traditional healthcare, and we really have to focus on the more disadvantaged populations, people who use and inject drugs. So better to think about tests to treat in the pharmacies. And, you know, for example, in Scotland, there was a recent randomized controlled trial of well, it was a cluster trial of 55 pharmacies providing methadone, which I think is really important. Dr. Bradberg's been involved with these efforts, which I completely support. And there was a pharmacist-led hep C pathway, and it was much more effective with higher odds of hep C cure, having the pharmacist do the dispensing and the work and the medical care around opiate use disorder, methadone, hep C treatment versus traditional pathways. And now there's a multi-center cluster randomized controlled trials in Scotland, Wales, and Australia underway to test the pharmacy model called reach hep C. So I really appreciate the idea of, you know, could we just even start this broad screening, but I think we have to set the bar a lot higher and let's make the most of the incredible education and the rigor of your training and the crazy work hours that you all have and how much, you know, and say, let's raise the bar and not stop at antibody screening. Let's think of models where we can start now working together and doing tests to treat through our pharmacies and our pharmacist expert colleagues. All right, thank you for all the information so far. 
Uh, before we wrap up, we'd just like to bring up one more thing. That is C is for Cure, a water fire lighting for RI defeats Hep C. This is an event that's held to raise awareness, help diminish stigma, and inspire people to get tested and cured. Can you tell us a little more about the event? Absolutely. So pre-COVID-19, this was one of the biggest Hep C festivals in the world. And Rhode Island Defeats Hep C is very fortunate to partner with Barnaby Evans and Waterfire. And we started this in 2014. Initially, I got a grant from the Rhode Island Foundation. So shout out and thank you to the Rhode Island Foundation Innovation Fellowship. So we started Rhode Island Defeats Hep C. And I think Barnaby Evans was very courageous in saying, we're going to have a Hep C night. And when we talked about it, I did say, Barnaby, people in that year, it was 2013, we started planning it, thought, you know, maybe it's cootie night. Maybe people are not going to come out. Maybe people don't want to bring their grandchildren. They think, oh, no, I'm going to catch something. Now, as a reminder, hep C is never transmitted through casual contact, ever. You cannot catch hep C through hugging, kissing, shaking hands, laughing, smiling, crying. Hep C is only transmitted when the blood of a person who's infected with hep C gets into our bloodstream through sharing needles or syringes to inject drugs or sharing cotton cooker, water spoon, filter, other equipment to inject drugs, or if we're snorting drugs and we share a straw bill to inject drugs, or through unprotected anal sex between men who have sex with men, or rarely, less than 5% of the time from a person who's pregnant to the developing fetus only occurs in 5% of the time, doesn't hurt the pregnancy at all. And, and the medications are so safe that at age three, the children can be treated. So this was just the stigma and the misunderstanding. And I thought, okay, great of Barnaby, we're gonna have this incredible night. Now, Waterfire, as you may know or may not know, is an, an event rated among the most wonderful outdoor festivals in the world by the Smithsonian and bonfires, hundreds of bonfires were lit all over the downtown rivers. And it's a night of outdoor food and entertainment and street performers and levity and joy and coming together. And the whole city comes out and it's for everybody. And we can sit quietly and listen to international music or we can dance or we can watch fire performers. This is an event for everyone. And we said, let's do it on World Hepatitis Day or as close to World Hepatitis Day as we can. Now there are only five global health holidays and World Hepatitis Day is one of them. And it's held on July 28th. Um, perfect time of year for water fire outdoors in our beautiful downtown Providence. And it's held on July 28th because that's the birthday of Nobel Prize winner Baruch Bloomberg. This physician scientist said in the 60s, there's a teeny little crazy creature that we can only see under the microscope. And I think it causes liver infection. And people said, what are you, crazy? And he discovered the hep B virus. Then he said, I think this little virus can cause cancer of the liver. And the naysayer said, what? A virus caused cancer? And he proved it could cause cancer. One of the first to understand that some viruses are oncogenic and cause cancer. Then he said, I think it can cause liver failure. And guess what? I'm gonna develop a vaccine to prevent the infection. And he did. This physician, Baruch Bloomberg, did all these things. and. When he died a few years ago in his honor, World Hepatitis Day was moved to July 28th. So that's why we try to hold C is for Cure, water fire lighting for Rhode Island Defeat C on a Saturday night as close to July 28th as we can. And lo and behold, the first year, July 2014, was a tremendous success with tens and 20, 30, 40,000 people coming out. And it was a joyful night and nobody thought it was going to be cooties. And 
it was just incredible. And I saw a lot of people come up to me all night long saying, oh my gosh, Dr. Taylor, I have hep C or I had hep C. I never thought there could be a night like this for me. And it makes me feel so good to come with my kids and my grandkids and my friends and have them understand this is a health problem like any other. It's just been that people with and at risk for hep C haven't been treated with the kindness and respect that they should. And we hope that through partnering with the arts communities, it would change. And Barnaby did things like have the festival ballet do a dancing performance that year to baby boomer music because baby boomers, one in 30, have hep C in the United States. Over the years, we've continued with this partnership and we've expanded to have an event that's much more inclusive culturally. We've had musicians who sing in different languages. We've had gospel music. Um, we've done all kinds of things. And the main, main thing for the medical community is that we wanna bring everyone together. Dr. Bradford was honored as the lead torchbearer. We have a huge opening ceremony that I think of as like Olympic opening ceremony. We have torchbearers march down and encircle a basin and we all light the torches and come together across institutions, across different professions, bring everyone together to kind of ignite passion and commitment to eliminate Hep C in Rhode Island, to working together, to teaching one another, to sharing new information and say all the institutions of education, health, public health research in Rhode Island should be Hep C institutions. So it's really gonna be a joyous evening this year on July 28th, a Saturday night, we're gonna gather at 7 p.m. because we haven't been able to do so under the challenge, under the strains of COVID-19. So we really look forward to seeing many listeners out in the audience. We're gonna have the Tycho drummers again from Brown University and RISD, and we're gonna honor five key people who really kept the flame alive working on hep C to improve individual and public health and prevention despite the challenges of COVID-19. So we're honoring this year, Dr. Jennifer Clark, Dr. Alan Epstein, Dr. Megan Pinkston Camp, Oz Lugo, a prevention expert from AIDS Care Ocean State, and Sophie Spreck-Walsh, our expert hep C nurse. And I, I wanna thank Dr. Bradberg He's going to be there. He was honored as a leader. Amanda is going to be honored as a torchbearer. I hope, Zachary, if you're available, we have a few, few spots. I think we might have two spots left, but we're going to have leaders from the Veterans Administration in Rhode Island, the Rhode Island Departments of Correction, Brown University, Project Weber Renew, Open Door Health, the Rhode Island Department of Health. Dr. Phil Chan is always there lending his support. Thundermas Health Center, Care New England, Infectious Disease Doc the leader of infectious disease there, Dr. Erica Hardy, AIDS Care Ocean States, the Miriam Hospital, Michaela Maynard, for example. So we're really excited to bring the whole Hep C community together and celebrate the way forward. Thank you so much for Waterfire. I'm glad that we had you on in, in time. We're going to rebroadcast our podcast uh, on uh, the day before World Hepatitis Day, and that July 30th is that Saturday. And come to Waterfire uh, and, and and learn about and and celebrate the destigmatization of Hep C. I had a I had a wonderful time, and I was honored to be invited as one of Dr. Taylor's guests. And I'm excited that Amanda will be there. And we will, yeah, we'll we'll definitely do our best to promote it uh, and get people out. And hopefully, it'll be a good night. All right, so the regimen for HCV includes implementing a coordinated, comprehensive, and multi-pronged approach that focuses on increasing awareness of hepatitis C and improving prevention strategies, access to screening, and access to treatment. Don't forget that you can find out about new episodes every week on our Twitter and Instagram at PharmD Pub Health, and that all of the Regimen podcast episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts.
And don't forget, C is for cure.